0: On this coming Wednesday, June 2nd, Queen Elizabeth II is going to celebrate the 68th anniversary of her coronation at Westminster Abbey. She has been the longest reigning monarch in British history. And this week, I discovered on YouTube that you can watch the entire three-hour ceremony from that day in 1953. And I I didn't sit down to watch the whole thing, um, but I did watch snippets here and there. And I listened to the BBC announcer who explained to me what was going on during each part of the ceremony that I was watching. And as you can likely imagine, the whole thing was quite the ordeal. I mean, there's so much pomp and circumstance involved with a ceremony like that. There was oaths and prayers and an assortment of songs that were sung. And all of it was likely rooted in culture and tradition in a way that a layman like me will never fully appreciate or understand. It's just part of the British culture. And ancient Israel likely also had uh, several of these traditions and practices around the ritual of coronation for its own monarch. Many interpreters agree that Psalm 2, the the psalm that we're looking at this morning, um, was likely uh, used during coronation ceremonies or during the inauguration ceremonies for the kings of Israel. Now, as Darcy explained last week, Many of the psalms, uh, many of these psalms that we're going to study, well, really every psalm in the book can be kind of categorized into various genres. There are wisdom psalms like Psalm 1, which we looked at last week. There are lament psalms. There are psalms of thanksgiving, hymns, and more. And all of those categories or genres aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. I mean, they, they can overlap a bit, but regardless, they can they can provide helpful context for us when we're reading each individual psalm. And this one that we're looking at this morning, Psalm 2, it firmly falls into the category of of something called a royal psalm. And a royal psalm, when we hear that, it's generally referring to the content of the psalm. The subject subject is either describing God as king or um, describes the human king um, of Israel. And some psalms are in this category because Uh, The king himself actually appears to be the speaker. The the psalm is written from his perspective. And like I said, Psalm 2 is is obviously in this category. It it describes the relationship of Gentile nations and their kings to Yahweh, the divine king, um, and his anointed earthly king. Now, little is explicitly known uh, from scripture itself about the context in which authors write any particular psalm. Um, that is unless there's information given in the title um, right before the psalm. And these little titles that you find in your Bible for, for each psalm, they, they may not have been written by the original author of any given psalm, but um, perhaps they were added by those who organized the psalms into the final form of the book that we have now. And regardless of who put them there, they do provide some helpful in- insight into the, the possible context in which some of these were written. Uh, Perhaps the most famous example, at least the one that's most memorable for me, is Psalm 51. Um, The title there tells us that the psalm was written by David uh, after Nathan had come to him uh, and called him out for committing adultery with Bathsheba. It's a a beautiful confession psalm, and reading it in the context of that story really brings it to life. Now for Psalm 2, we have no such title giving us the historical context or even telling us who wrote it. Um, We only know that in the New Testament, uh, David is given credit for writing writing this psalm. And like I said, many interpreters uh, believe that this is a coronation hymn. And it's really not hard to imagine that it would be. Um, I mean, the psalm speaks very highly of of the anointed king as God's representative, presenting him as having uh, rule and dominion, even over rival nations. So let's grab our Bibles and let's turn together to Psalm chapter 2, and we'll look at it together this morning. Um, Now, the psalm can be divided into uh, four different sections, four stanzas of the poem. And for this morning, um, I'll just give them each uh, a simple name. So first, we see the rebellion in verses 1 through 3. And then we see God's response, the response in verses 4 to 6. And then we see the king in verses 7 to 9. And finally, the refuge in verses 10 to 12. So the rebellion, the response, the king, and the refuge. So first, the rebellion in verses 1 to 3. So the initial verses of Psalm 2, they introduce the nations of the earth, led by their kings who rebel against God and resist his rule. They set themselves up as enemies of the Lord and enemies of his anointed one against the earthly king which God has chosen. And this is really the default position of the human heart, is it not? to uh to not follow god and to disobey his commands and this this default position really scales up it scales up from the individual all the way up to the the hearts and the the posture of even nations i mean left to our own devices um, we will at best ignore and at worst actively rebel against resist or fight god and it's it's not clear in the psalm whether there's a, an immediate context that has led the psalmist to reflect on this. Like, we don't know if at this particular time if there's um, nations coming up against Israel, but certainly at various points she had her enemies, enemies which actively tried to squash her and had no regard for God and his laws. And then in verse 2, the psalmist writes that this rebellion, it's it's not only against God in heaven, but it's also against his chosen earthly ruler, the king. Verse two says, the kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now the word there for anointed is Messiah, and that's a term that we're, we're probably familiar with. When we hear it, we always think of the Messiah, right? The expected king to come. But sometimes in the Old Testament, that word is, is used in more general terms. And in the immediate context of Psalm 2, it's, it's really just referring to uh, the incoming Davidic king, the one who's about to be inaugurated. But if we flip to the New Testament, we find that writers will interpret a deeper meaning to Psalm 2. And, and they suggest that this, this term, the anointed one, actually does refer to Christ himself. We see it in, in Acts chapter 4 when Peter and John have been roughed up by the council at Jerusalem for preaching the gospel um, and then eventually released. Uh, the early believers are describing the events in, in a prayer and thanking God, and they apply these verses about the rebellious nations. They apply them to Herod and to Pontius Pilate, uh, the Gentiles, and even some of the nation of Israel, and then they refer to Jesus Christ as the anointed one. And certainly, uh, in the first century, we saw rebellion against God's anointed one, against Christ, but also throughout the rest of history, and and even today, we see cultures, um, societies, nations that want to fight God and ignore what he has to say about the right way to live. And some have done so very consciously and deliberately, um, specifically trying to ignore or eliminate God. They see any kind of religion or maybe Christianity in particular, as problematic, as evil, as useless. Um, Others perhaps have rebelled in a less obvious way, and it has been a slow fade as society decides, you know what, we don't need you, God. We're going to go our own way. And perhaps we might think that when we see this psalm, um, you know, the language of the nations raging and plotting against the Lord as a, you know, that language is a bit dramatic, we might think. But on the balance, if we're honest with ourselves, in our current cultural moment, like, do we see nations and culture, cultures setting themselves up for or against God, for or against true, honest, sincere faith and submission to him as Lord? Like, I think we see the world generally taking the position that, that the nations do in these first three verses of the psalm, setting themselves and taking counsel against the Lord. Viewing his law, which we are supposed to love and cherish and follow, as we saw in Psalm 1 last week, they see that law as bringing bondage rather than breaking it. I mean, look at what the nations say in verse 3. They say, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. These nations view following God and subjection to his reign as something that enslaves them, that holds them back and controls them rather than something that brings them life. In some ways, it's sort of akin to how we probably all felt at some point or, or we thought at some point uh, in relation to the authority of our parents. I mean, rules, guidelines, discipline, um, they aren't pleasant in the moment. And they, they maybe don't make sense. I mean, what do you mean I can't stay up until whenever I want? What do you mean I can't watch that movie? What do you mean I have to do chores? What do you mean I can't talk to you like that? These rules, these guidelines, they maybe didn't make sense. We don't see the benefit. We just feel trapped and misunderstood. And perhaps some of us even raged and plotted against our parents. We wanted to get out, to do things our own way, even though in reality, our parents were only doing what was best for us, training us how to live well, how to regulate ourselves, and to avoid learning lessons the hard way. I'm sure we can all relate um, in some sense to this heart resistance, at least on an individual level. But I also don't think it's hard to see, like we said earlier, that that in general, nations and societies and culture have the same proclivity. There's this tendency to view religion as a set of handcuffs rather than a key to true freedom. And the default position is, to, um, is, is resistance to bringing... Christian thought and ethics and practice into the public sphere. Sometimes it just takes the form of polite refusal, like, no thanks, you can keep your Jesus to yourself, we don't need him, Um, we're good. But sometimes it is outright hostility. But right from the get-go, Psalm 2 hints that that sort of rejection and that rebellion is ultimately futile. The psalm opens with the question, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The assumption here is that you can't go up against the creator and expect to come out on top. Children can't ignore the guidance of good parents, coaches, and mentors, and expect to develop into mature, fulfilled, well-adjusted adults. And this leads us right into the second stanza, verses 4 through 6, where the psalmist expands on the idea and we see God's response to the nations. And so we have, in the second stanza, the response, verses 4 through 6. In response to the rebellion of the nations, like God is pictured as sitting on his throne laughing. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, it says. It's as though he's ridiculing them. The effect here is to contrast God's omnipotence against the impotence of anyone who would fight against him. There's just no contest. And the laughter is because of how absurd and misguided rebellion is against the creator of the universe. Like, as if you're going to win that battle. At some point in, uh, in my late high school years, or, or maybe it was in university, um, there was this running joke that developed in my family. You know, I don't know what the context around it was exactly, but my sister at some point had said to my brother and I, I could take you, you know. She figured she could beat us in a fight. <laughs> now, Brandon and I never fully tested that theory because, well, we didn't need to. We just responded with laughter and mockery, like like brothers would do. And again, I have no idea what prompted Meg to say all of this. But, but by this point, we weren't her wee little brothers anymore. Um, our bodies had developed into those of young men, and I'm not saying we were the strongest young men around, but we also weren't the kind of guys that were going to lose to our sister in a fight. So our response was maybe a little derision and mockery. Like, Megan, don't be ridiculous. Like, there's no way you can take us. And then eventually she said, well, sure I can, if you don't try your hardest. Well, we had a field day with that one too. But you see, when she thought about it, she realized that just by sheer biology, she wasn't going to come out on top of that fight. There would be no contest. And how much more is the contrast between creator and creation, between the almighty and the human nations? There's no doubt that human individuals and and groups of humans can be powerful in their own right. They can accomplish some pretty impressive things. Um, They can be forces to to be reckoned with, in a sense. But it all pales in comparison to the strength and the wisdom of the Lord. This is why God's response in the psalm um, to the nations rebellion, it it can just be laughter. It has the same sort of hilarity of a five-year-old packing up his backpack with juice boxes and a few sandwiches and telling his parents, I don't need you anymore. I think I can do this on my own. I'm moving out. We can try to carve our own path in the world as individuals or as a community, and it might work for a little while. But ultimately, if we leave the giver of life behind... We can't expect our journey to be life-giving. And then from verses 4 into verse 5 in the psalm, the response to the nations, it moves beyond ridicule and into rebuke. And the interesting thing here is that the rebuke is rooted in God's establishment of an earthly king, his chosen one, his anointed one over Israel. Verses 5 and 6 read like this. Then he will speak to them in his wrath, and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king in Zion, my holy hill. This second stanza that we're in, the response of God to the rebellion, it's rooted in the theme of God's sovereignty. It's rooted in his his power, his wisdom, his might, and the contrast of that sovereignty with the finite nature of humans. And in verse six here, the emphasis is that it's this sovereign God This creator who has installed, chosen, set in place the king of Israel. The almighty himself is backing this monarch. And if that's true, the nation should fear this king. Because if God is on his side, like who can oppose him? If God is behind him, well, good luck fighting with him. It reminds me of a story, the story in Acts 5, um, where the Pharisee Gamaliel warns the council at Jerusalem when they want to kill Peter and the other apostles. He says to them, So in the present case I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. In Psalm 2, God is described as backing the Israelite king. And this in and of itself is meant to leave the nations shaking in their boots. And so, so far, we've read about the rebellion in verses one to three, and we've seen the response of a sovereign God in verses four to six. And now the psalm pivots to the third stanza, verses seven to nine, where we're going to read about the king. And as we do, we can start to see why this might have been used in a coronation ceremony. The emphasis in the next few verses is on the intimate connection between the king of Israel and the king of heaven. Verses 7, in verses 7 through 9, the speaker is now the anointed king himself. It would have been David or one of his descendants who's about to be inaugurated on the throne. And he's recounting what God has spoken to them, what God has promised. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. These verses highlight the legitimacy of the king's rule. He's divinely appointed, chosen by God to take that position. What king wouldn't want this spoken of him as they take the throne? Like, that they are are welcomed into a relationship with God that is so close, it's described as that of a father and an adopted son. Like, God is ready to give them dominion over the nations. All of this is set against the theological backdrop of God's covenants with Israel in the Old Testament, and in particular, his covenant with David. You know, first, God promised to make Abraham a great nation and bless the nations through him. And then later on, he makes a covenant with Abraham's descendant, David, as outlined in 2 Samuel. And God promises to David that his kingdom, his house, will be established forever. You know, God wanted to use the nation of Israel to show the world what he was like what the world can look like when, when he and his people are in charge. And he was going to do this through the Davidic monarchy, which would last forever. And the king's rule, the psalm says, is meant to extend beyond Israel's border and to the nations. Life with God isn't meant to be reserved to Israel only, even though it would come through Israel. But some commentators on this psalm will point out that the description of the Davidic king here and elsewhere in the psalms actually is a bit idealistic it's perhaps a little bit out of step with what's actually observed in israel's history because the king is meant to be an upright leader a lover of god's law an executor of justice an exemplar of psalm 1 which we looked at one of those trees planted firmly with its roots in god's word but if we're at all familiar with the history of israel's kings found in the historical books of the old testament We know that only a handful of them lived up to this expectation. One commentator actually writes that overall, the testimony of the historical books is that the kings were largely responsible for Israel's degradation of faith, as well as the end of the monarchy in the sixth century BC, when the Babylonians laid siege to Jerusalem and took the nation into exile. And then after that, once the monarchy had ended, hope began to grow for someone who would come later to restore that Davidic covenant and become the king that Israel had longed for, that Israel needed, the righteous king that was prayed for in Psalm 72. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness, May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. Like, what a great hope that is for a king. What a king that would be. Well, that would be the Messiah that is to come. Now, again, we said earlier, the the Hebrew word um, for Messiah means anointed one, and it's the word that shows up in in, in verse 2 of Psalm 2. And again, in some context in the Old Testament, it's used in a more general sense. But at some point, it took on this specific meaning referring to the Messiah that is to come, the anointed one who would usher in the fulfillment of God's promise to David. And of course, the Greek equivalent to the word is the word Christ. So every time the New Testament writers refer to Jesus as the Christ, they're saying he's the one, he's the Messiah, the true king to come. And we often see Psalm 2 cited in the New Testament with reference to Jesus. Like clearly, the writers there are saying this psalm is to be interpreted as prophetic in nature. The early believers refer to it in Acts 4 in a prayer thanking God for the release of Peter and John. Paul cites it in Acts 13 as he gives a sermon at Pisidian Antioch. The writer to the Hebrews cites it in chapter 1 verse 5 as a part of his case that Jesus is better than the angels. And in each case, they either tie Jesus uh, to the title of the anointed one that we see in Psalm 2 verse 2, or to the reference to the king as God's son in verse 7. We also even see Jesus affirmed as the fulfillment of this psalm at his baptism, when the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And then there's even a few places in Revelation that reference Psalm 2 but it's not the bit about the anointed one in verse 2 or where the king is called God's son in verse 7. It's the you shall rule them with a rod of iron in verse 9. Listen to this passage from Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What a description that is, eh? Not one we hear read often, but powerful nonetheless. And we see that all through the New Testament, that The interpretation of Psalm 2 is consistent, that this coronation hymn has a deeper significance. To the hearers of that day at those ceremonies, it would have reminded them of God's sovereignty over the nations, his absolute power and might. It reminded them of the covenant to David and his commitment to Israel and his chosen people. They would have been drawn to that thought of God's faithfulness to them every time a new king was inaugurated. But after the end of the monarchy, it took on this deeper meaning because it started to point to this day when Jesus would come to do what no earthly king in Israel had done or could do, to defeat sin and death and be seated on the throne forever. Psalm 2 looked forward to when Christ would bring finality to that divinic covenant, when God himself would be king, not over Israel alone, but over all the nations. And then at his name, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And as the psalmist moves into the final stanza of his poem, he once again turns back to the kings, those rebellious uh, rulers of rival nations, and he leaves them with the same question and admonishment that we are left with today when we read this psalm. He is king of kings, he is lord of lords, but is he he your lord? The final stanza of the psalm, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The admonishment To the gentile kings is this based on the sovereign power of the almighty are you going to continue to resist his life-giving rule or in reverence will you serve him and give homage to his chosen king and to us jesus is of course our savior the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world he is our victor destroying evil and death on our behalf but is he our lord are we willing to trust him completely to the point of total surrender and obedience in every aspect of our lives? Will we delight in his law day after day in our private individual lives as Psalm 1 encourages us? And will we respond to this Psalm too, as a community to show one another the freedom that comes with bowing the knee to him and trusting his rule in our lives? These are the questions that the compilers of the Psalter have left us with when they placed these two psalms together as the introduction to the whole book. And so in closing, hear once more the Beatitudes, which start Psalm 1 and finish Psalm 2. Psalm 1, verse 1. How blessed, how happy and to be envied is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And then Psalm 2, verse 12. How blessed, how happy and to be envied are all who take refuge in the Lord and in his Christ. Amen.